Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks again for your love for us, your kindness in all of our lives. We thank you that you give us give meaning to all of our lives, uh, whether it's a good day or a bad day, a trial or a celebration. We thank you for these occasions where we can come apart and be together, uh, take a few moments to take a breath, to think, to pray, uh, to listen, to learn, so that we might go right back out into the lives you've called us to as students, as members of families and churches and communities, uh, in our relationships, in all that you set before us, uh, that we might be representatives of Jesus Christ to this world. So I pray for all who are present today that this would be a time of engagement, of uh, thoughtfulness, and of uh, a desire to know you better. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to talk to you today about the holiness of God, and I'm going to begin by asking kind of a, a couple of rhetorical questions. How are you at horizontal comparison? Uh, how do you measure up as you compare yourself to other people, your friends, your family, um, wherever you work? Uh, how do you see yourself? Uh, on average, are you a pretty good person? Are you doing all right? How are you at vertical comparison? Comparing yourself to a holy God. How do you measure up? Are you, pretty, are you a pretty good person? Are you doing all right? See, it matters, the standard matters what we are and who we are comparing ourselves to. And that's one of the problems. If God's not in the picture or if he's in the background somewhere, we can feel pretty good about ourselves because we can always find people to compare ourselves to. I remember many, many years ago, I've been uh, married for almost uh, 49 years, and when we were young, we were driving an old hoopty car, and my wife was saying, man, he said, we were driving down the road, and she said, everybody's got a new car. And my wife's not very materialistic, but... I said, well, let's just do an experiment for the next couple of miles. Let's just count how many cars are newer than ours and how many are older than ours. And there were more cars older than ours than were newer than ours. Ours was not new. But we, we tend to see what we want to see. We compare to the things we want to compare to that, that deliver what we want delivered. So if I want to feel good about myself, I can always find people, at least from a distance, that I think I'm better than. But I want to urge you, I want to urge us all to look to God first. He created us, and he sets the standard. And that's where we have to start. And it's going to be disturbing in some ways, because we are going to see ourselves as we see him. And the first part of that is unsettling. It's like going and getting a, a difficult diagnosis from uh, a doctor. You don't want to hear that. But the good news is there's a remedy. And then that makes, all of a sudden, uh, the remedy becomes good news. That's the gospel. So the low, a low view of God, uh, the low view of God that's entertained, I'm, I'm sorry, this is a quote by A.W. Tozer. The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. The decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on our troubles. 
a rediscovery of the majesty of God will go a long way toward curing them. Another quote from J.I. Packer. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. Pretty powerful statements about the necessity of us knowing God, knowing a holy God. So before we can begin to know ourselves or the world that we live in, we first must know God. He is the creator and we, we and the world are his creatures. But we must know about God, but we all must also know him. Those are not the same thing. But how can we know him? Well, I'd like to suggest we get to know him. He, uh, the triune God is three persons. How do we get to know any person? We're first introduced to them, right? You've probably met some persons already in the last day or two that you didn't know before. Now you'd say you know them. We could read a resume. We could get references. We could uh, perhaps even conduct an interview. Maybe you've done that. Some, I heard some of you doing that just now when you were praying. Tell me about yourself. Where, where do you live? Where are you from? You ask some questions. Uh, observation. You see people. You see how they act. Maybe you were playing games last night. And you were able to observe personality traits about people. Some are quiet. Some are more outgoing. All kinds of things you do by observation. Or perhaps you see their work. And you see, you learn something about them. Obviously, conversations. How about through letters? Well, we can do all of that when we get to know God. How do we perceive Him? How does God reveal Himself? Now, since God is both infinite and eternal, knowing Him might seem to be a daunting, if not impossible, task. He's infinite. And we're finite. Uh, we're like a little child trying to know an adult, perhaps, as a, an example. The problem, it's the problem of induction. I, I got a little pea brain, and God is infinite, and I'm trying to get to know him. And so the problem of induction makes it really almost impossible for me to know anything for certain, at least on the face of it. There's a, a, a joke I've always liked uh, about the man who went to Seattle and it rained every day for two weeks. And he saw a little boy there. He's about a little boy. And he said, are you from here? And he said, yes, sir. And he says, does it rain every day? And he says, I don't know. I'm only seven. <laughs> um, so we have that problem. Uh, we, we, we've been here for a few years and we think we know everything. You think about a six-year-old. He thinks he knows everything, right? You start talking. I know, I know, I know. Ten-year-olds, same way. Fifteen-year-olds, same way. Twenty-year-olds, same way. Sixty-seven-year-olds, same way. We think we know everything we need to know, but we don't know what we don't know, right? So wouldn't we have to know all the facts about God, past, present, and future, in all their proper relations in order for us to be certain about anything? Now, since the absence of even one little bit of information uh, would perhaps change things, um, uh, so it would alter our understanding. And since 
we're very limited on how much we can know and how much we can receive, how much we can assimilate. Knowledge with certainty might seem impossible. So let me try to clarify that a little bit. How much do you know about the past? Of all the things there are to know, would it be fair to say you know almost nothing? How about the present? How about the future? So you know almost nothing about everything. And yet to know anything for certain, you would have to know everything about the past, present, and future in all their proper relations. So it's really a hopeless situation, perhaps. So even, uh, so we would have to conclude it's impossible for us to know truth at all, much less to know God. And even if we could apprehend the truth, we'd have no way of having certainty that we'd have the truth. Have you ever thought you knew something and then you found out something next year? Oh, I used to think this, but now I know something different. It changed. And if you get to my age, you start forgetting things you used to know. And so it's coming and going. So even if we could apprehend the truth, we have a problem. There is, however, another way. There is another way that we can know things, and we can know them with certainty, even though we cannot know them exhaustively. God is a person who does know all the facts, past, present, and future, in all their proper relations, which means he knows himself perfectly. You don't know yourself perfectly. Let me just pause and chase a rabbit for a minute. There are different versions of you. There's the version that your family has, the people who know you most, your family, your parents, your siblings. If I ask if they know you, they'd say yes, and they could start describing you. And then there's your own view of yourself. And then there's a view that your neighbors have and the views that your friends have and the views that the people at Walmart have and the people at church. Everybody has a somewhat different view of you. But, of course, God has a view of you that's the accurate view. So your own view of yourself is not even accurate because you don't have comprehensive knowledge of yourself. But God does have comprehensive knowledge of himself. And so... He possesses the knowledge that is both certain and exhaustive. And if, and we're talking about how can we know something, if the all-knowing, omniscient God is pleased to reveal uh, knowledge of himself to us, you know, it's revelation, if he's willing to reveal himself, then we too can know those things that he reveals with certainty and we may infer other knowledge based on those certainties. Deuteronomy 29.29 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we might do all the works of this law. So the infinite God, if he's pleased to reveal himself to us, not exhaustively, but what he tells us, we, we can know. So, The following, I want to read a statement taken from Dr. J. Gresson Machen's book, The Christian Faith in the Modern World, written in 1936. Uh, Dr. Machen was a professor of apologetics at Princeton University and later the founder of Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He says this, How can we discover whether there is a God at all? 
I have something rather simple to say about that question at the very start, and it's something that seems to me to be rather obvious, and yet it is something that is quite generally ignored. It is simply this, that if we are really to know anything about God, it will probably be because God has chosen to tell it to us. Many persons seem to go on a very different assumption. They, they seem to think that if they are to know anything about God, they must discover God for themselves. That assumption seems to me to be extremely unlikely. Just supposing for the sake of argument that there is a being of such a kind as that he might properly, uh, with any propriety, be called God, it does seem antecedently very improbable that weak and limited creatures of a day such as we are should, should discover him by our own efforts without any will on his part to make himself known to us. At least I think we can say that a God who could be discovered in that way would hardly be worth discovering. A mere passive subject of human investigation is certainly not a living God who can satisfy the longing of our souls. A divine being that could be discovered by my efforts, apart from his gracious will to reveal himself to me, and to others, would be either a mere name for a certain aspect of man's own nature, a God that we could find within us, or else at best a mere passive thing that would be subject to investigation like the substances that are analyzed in a laboratory. I think we ought to stick to that principle rather firmly. I think we ought to be rather sure that we cannot know God unless God has been pleased to reveal himself to us. By the way, almost everything you know, you know by authority. You know because somebody told you. You know it, again, you not, they not only told you, but you believe them. Maybe it was your parents, your pastor, a teacher, a book you read, a documentary you watched. These are the raw materials we're given, and then we can reason and deduct from some of those things. But we know God, how? By his words and by his works. And God's actions, that is, uh, so his words are his special revelation we have in the Bible. And God's actions, his natural revelation, and those do not contradict each other. Romans tells us that which may be known about, known, known about God is evident in the things that are made, including his invisible attributes. So God's words and actions stand in mutual support of one another and bear testimony to who he is. In other words, we know a person by what they say and what they do. The fourth question on the, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Now, in this short summary, there are several attributes of God mentioned, all of which must be explored in some depth. But today, for this talk, we are going to explore one of these, and that is holiness and some of its implications. Exodus 15.11 uh, asks, Who is like you, Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness? Holiness is a glorious perfection that belongs to the nature of God. Uh, and I'll just say something about glory for a moment. Glory is a magnification, an amplification. And so um, 
so what we want to see here is this perfection of God magnifies who God is. This is a central uh, attribute of who he is. Uh, at our house, I want to illustrate holiness a little bit. We have my wife inherited her mother's fine china. Uh, it's a Haviland china, and we have a china hutch built into our house. We built a house. We built a special cabinet to put the special dishes in, and those are, in that sense, holy dishes. Uh, we don't get them out very often. They're there on display because they're beautiful. And when we do get them out, especially as our children were young, the first question they would ask is, who's coming over? What's, what's the occasion? Because we knew these are special. These are holy. They're set apart. They don't get put with the other dishes. They don't go in the dishwasher. Uh, they're handled with extra care uh, because they're special. They're holy. They're set apart. And that's the idea of holiness. Throughout the Bible, God is revealed as the Holy One, the Holy One of Jacob, the Holy One of Israel. In fact, He is described as holy more often than He is, as, than he is Almighty or any of His other attributes. The holiness of God is, first of all, that divine perfection by which He is absolutely distinct from all His creatures and is exalted above them in infinite majesty. He is not one of us. He is not one of us. This is the meaning which it has in these passages. 1 Samuel 2.2 No one is like Yahweh, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Isaiah 57.15 For thus says the High and Lofty One who inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to receive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Revelation 15.4 Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. And so while the fundamental idea of holiness uh, is that of separation. It also denotes something positive, namely the moral excellence and ethical perfection of God. This is really critical. Remember, as we get to know God, what's going to happen is in the process of knowing Him accurately, we are going to get to know ourselves more accurately. In the presence of this holiness... Man feels himself burdened with a consciousness of sin. Job 34.10 Therefore listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. And then in Isaiah 6.5, we'll look closer at this passage in a moment. When Isaiah sees God on his throne, he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. That was his reaction. In fact, throughout the Bible, that's the reaction we see. When anybody encounters God, they fall down. They're alarmed. They recognize they have a problem. Holiness may be defined as that perfection of God in virtue of which he eternally wills and maintains his own 
moral excellence, hates sin, and demands purity in his moral creatures. That would be us. The righteousness of God is closely related to his holiness since it's the attribute by which he maintains himself over against every violation of his holiness. That's, holiness is not, just, it's not something that's added to God. It's who he is. It's essential. It shows in every respect his righteousness that he is the Holy One. And this is really important. Low and casual views of God. You know, the man upstairs or false views that attempt to make God into our own image. He's like us, so we can measure up. This is man's fundamental problem. If I can redefine God, if I can create a God in my image, or a God that I can control, then I'm safe. I don't have anything to worry about. I'm okay. I'm a pretty good person. But if he is who he's, who, as he's revealed in Scripture, I'm in trouble, and you're in trouble. Man's fundamental problem, Romans 3.18 says, is that there is no fear of God before their eyes. A few quotes on this that I think are helpful. R.C. Sproul, in his book on holiness of God, says this, The clearest sensation that a human being has... When he experiences the holiness of God is an overpowering and overwhelming sense of creatureliness. That is, when we are in the presence of God, we are humbled and become most aware of ourselves as creatures. This is the opposite of Satan's original temptation, which said, you shall be as God's. Calvin said, man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly estate until he has compared himself with God's majesty. Jonathan Edwards, any sin is more or less heinous depending upon the honor and majesty of the one whom we have have offended. Since God is of infinite honor, Infinite majesty and infinite holiness, the slightest sin is of infinite consequence. The slightest sin is nothing less than cosmic treason when we realize against whom we have sinned. I want to continue with two more. Another from R.C. Sproul. Sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything, to the one who has given us life itself. Have you ever considered the deeper implications of the slightest sin of the most minute piccadillo? What are we saying to our Creator when we disobey Him at the slightest point? We are saying no to the righteousness of God. We are saying, God, your law is not good. My judgment is better than yours. Your authority does not apply to me. I am above and beyond your jurisdiction. I have the right to do what I want to do, not what you command me to do. One more. This one's a little longer. Herman Bavink, a great theologian. He said, to correctly assess the benefit of justification, we'd say salvation, 
People must lift up their minds to the judgment seat of God and put themselves in his presence. When they compare themselves with others or measure themselves by the standard they apply to themselves or among each other, they have some reason perhaps to pride themselves in something uh, and and to put their trust in it. But when they put themselves before the face of God and examine themselves in the mirror of his holy law, all their conceit collapses. All self-confidence melts and there is room left only for the prayer, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. And their only comfort is that there is forgiveness before you so that you may be feared. Psalm 130 verse 4. If for insignificant, guilty, and impure persons there is to be a possibility of true religion, that is, of genuine fellowship with God, of salvation and eternal life, then God on his part must reestablish the broken bond, again take them into fellowship with him and share his grace with them, regardless of their guilt and corruption. He then must descend from the height of his majesty Seek us out and come to us and take away our guilt and again open the way to his fatherly heart. If God were to wait until we, by our faith, our virtues, and our good works, had made ourselves worthy, in part or in whole, to receive his favor, the restoration of communion between him and ourselves would never happen and salvation would forever be out of reach to us. Sinful man, in all of his arrogance, despises the holiness of God. In response to the sinfulness of Sennacherib, king of Syria, these questions were asked in 2 Kings 19. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high against the Holy One of Israel? The same questions can be asked of us and of every person who sins against God. Our sins are always an offense against His holiness. And if you ever get a glimpse of His holiness, you'll begin to get a glimpse of your true self. False gods are no threat to us, but a holy God is a terror to a sinner. Why do you think the demons believe and tremble? The Song of Moses describes the miraculous defeat and ruin of the Egyptian army in Exodus 15, 10-12. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O God, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praise, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. And the earth swallowed them. One of the most famous passages that demonstrates the power of the holiness of God is found in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. I want to read that. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings. And with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. 
And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with tongs, taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. So after the seraphim celebrated his holiness in Isaiah 6, 3, verse 4 says that the post moved and the house was filled with smoke, which is a description of the anger of God being stirred. And God allowed Isaiah to see his holiness right before he was sent to deliver a message of spiritual and temporal judgments to people who were in high rebellion against this holy God. Starting in verse 9, he said, uh, Isaiah said he was willing to go, and he said, he said, go and tell this people. Here's what happens when we disregard the true God. We shove him out. And we replace him with some other lesser God in our minds and hearts. And that's what had happened to his people. He says, go tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Basically, we see this in Romans 1. Too. You, is that what you want? then I'll let you have it. Why don't you try that and see how that works. You be your own God for a while. You substitute something lesser and see how your life works out. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he, said, and he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate, the Lord has removed men far away, and, forsake, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. This is what happens when we forsake the true and living God. That's the end result. Now, we need to remember God's justice is part of his holiness. Negatively, we would say that God is perfect and he's undefiled. Gold is considered to be pure when it's free from all dross. I was a jeweler for about ten years, and we take scrap gold and we put it in a crucible and heat it up to over 900 degrees and smoke would go everywhere. And you'd have, it would look like a bowl full of trash. Sweep the floor because I work in a shop, gold dust. Uh, it just looked like black dirt until the heat was put to it and we burned off all the dross. And then you'd finally, as it got closer and closer to that temperature, this glow, it looked like a little sun glowing. All the smoke burning off. And then when you were finished, there was this chunk of gold. And so... Removing, we take away all the impurity. The nature of God is free from any hint of evil. Positively, we would say His holiness is as necessary to His being as His omniscience. He can only know what is right and do what is just. He is necessarily holy and as necessarily without sin as He is necessarily without change. 
God is so holy that he cannot possibly approve of any evil done by someone else. Psalm 5, 4. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The nature of God is so holy that he cannot but hate evil. Habakkuk 1.13, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. So you cannot love God and you cannot love holiness and not also hate everything that is contrary to it. As God necessarily loves himself, so he must necessarily hate everything that is against himself. Therefore, God hates all sin. And he not only hates the sin, but Psalm 5.5 5 says, you hate all the workers of iniquity. Psalm 7.11 says, and God is angry with the wicked every day. The Apostle Paul opens his letter to the Ephesians, reminding them and us, saying, Blessed is the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us, in him before the foundation of the world, so we could all go to heaven and live happily ever after. No, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. That's what we're chosen for, is holiness. Holiness is what we're called to. We're called to be separate. Distinct from the world. We're called to be holy as He is holy. We're called to hate sin as He hates sin. Sin in ourselves, sin in others. And we need what was needed in the days of Jehoshaphat. Second Chronicles 19.4 So Jehoshaphat dwelt in Jerusalem, and he went out again among the people from Beersheba to the mountains of Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord God of their fathers. And Jehoshaphat commanded and appointed leaders, saying, Thus you shall act in the fear of the Lord, faithfully and with a loyal heart. And then in chapter 20, it happened after this that the people of Moab, the people of Ammon, and others uh, with them besides the Ammonites, came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from, the sea, from beyond the sea, from Syria, and they are Hazazon Tamar. They are in Hazazon Tamar. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaim a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord. And from all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe in his prophets, and you shall prosper. And, what he has cons- and when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord, who should praise the beauty of holiness, as they went out before the army and were saying, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. So that's the first part of what I want to tell you. The second part's shorter, but uh, I'm going to take a little different angle here. We must know God. If you've never done a study, I would really recommend Packer's book, Knowing God, is a great place to start. If you really want a, uh, a more exhaustive work, uh, Stephen Charnock's book on the existence and attributes of God is a fantastic work as well. Uh, 
this is really critical. If we don't know God, if we have some imagination about God, little bits and pieces we picked up here and there, then we don't have it right. We need to go to His Word and make sure we know Him as He's revealed Himself to be, not as we've imagined Him to be. So I want to acknowledge in this second part my dear friend and personal mentor, Dr. Greg Bonson, taught me many things, including the necessity of our being beginning to know and comprehend the holiness of God. So I want to share with you some of the things he taught me many, many years ago, things that changed my view of God and therefore my view of how we should then live. There are two ways to be like God. All men want to be like God. Moreover, all men are striving to imitate God in one way or another. Nevertheless, not all attempts to be like God are the same. It's one thing to submit to the satanic temptation to be like God when he told Eve, For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll be in charge. You won't have anybody telling you what to do. You can interpret this world and interpret yourself and interpret everything in it and its meaning and value and determine what's good and what's not good, and you're in charge. You can be like God. That is completely a completely different thing than, however, to respond to Christ's requirement that we should be like God. Matthew 5:48. Therefore you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father as your Father in heaven is perfect. In both cases, we're to be, there's two ways to be like God, or try to be like God. The first is an attempt to replace God's ethical standard with our own. While the second is an attempt to demonstrate godliness as a moral virtue. God expects of His people nothing less than full conformity to His holy character in all their thoughts, words, and deeds. They must emulate his perfection in every aspect of their lives. You're young adults. You're beginning the adult portion of your life. You're going to have families and children and jobs and relationships and engaged in your church and communities. You're called to be something and to do something, to represent him, to be his children, and to be like him. And this is... um, uh, according to the, uh, you must emulate his perfection in every aspect. According to the Old Testament ethic, God's holiness was the model for human conduct. Leviticus 19:2. You shall be holy, for I, Yahweh your God, am holy. This is the exact same standard of moral conduct for New Testament believers. First Peter 1: 15 through 16. But as He who called you is holy, you also Uh, You also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. So there's been no alteration, no reduction of the standard of moral behavior between the Old and the New Testaments. We don't have a lighter view of God in the New Testament. God's permanent requirements over all of life is God imitating holiness. In all ages, including our own, believers are required to display in every area of their lives the holiness and perfection of God. 
I hope you're sitting there saying, man, I'm, I really, one thing I've commented to these other men who are working on these talks is, as I'm studying this, what I come away with, boy, I have a long way to go. Uh, I really recognize the more I get a glimpse of the holiness of God, the more I realize uh, how dependent I am upon him to accomplish that work. And so we ought to be like God, not in the satanic sense, which amounts to lawlessness or autonomy, self-law, but in the biblical sense, which entails submission to God's commandments. And we live in a time often among Christians that we're afraid to talk about the law of God. We believe in grace, not law, right? What's the opposite of law? Is that grace? No, the opposite of law is lawlessness. Grace is something different. Grace is necessary. Grace is essential. But grace is not opposed to the law of God. What we see all around us is a world full of little gods, demigods, who want to define themselves. This is why the whole notion of identity politics is so powerful and popular. You're just a machine that evolution has cranked out somehow. And now you get to, it's like having a car. You get to decide how to drive it. You want to drive it fast, slow? You want to park it? You want to run it into a tree? You want to turn it upside down? You want to paint it seven colors and put stickers? You can do what you want to with it. It's your machine. You can define it. Your body, you define it. You're you. You're God. You are in control. You get to write the story all by yourself. And so that is the standard. They want to live in a world on their own terms. They're not creatures. There is no creator. There's no one to be accountable to. Certainly not a holy God. When my girls were little girls, I think maybe around three and five, um, Rachel's my youngest, uh, and Kristen was uh, two and a half years older, sitting in the back seat. And Kristen, we often called her mother because she was usually correcting her younger sister. And they were in the back seat. They had some Crayolas I was driving. And uh, Rachel said, asked Kristen, uh, or, or I asked Rachel, I said, what, what, what are you doing? She said, I'm coloring. I said, what color are you using? And she said, yellow. And Kristen said, that's not yellow, that's red. And I couldn't see directly behind me, but the, the conversation ensued, and Rachel said, no, it's yellow. And, Rachel, and Kristen said, Rachel, it's red. And I knew Kristen was correct. Uh, and finally, I said, Rachel, what? Hand, me, hand it to me. And she handed it to me. I said, Rachel, that's red. She said, I want it to be yellow. <laughs> and I thought, that's the problem, Right. God says, this is the world, this is the way I made it, this is what I call it to be. And we say, I want it to be yellow. I want it to be not what you said it is. I want to be in charge. I'll decide what color it is. So Christians, how are you going to live your lives and raise your families? You have denied yourself, taken up your cross, and you're now followers of Jesus Christ. Notice where that started. Self-denial. 
Your lives should be demonstratively and dramatically different from the rest of the world who are seeking to be their own God. Now, I'm not talking about going out and just being a weirdo here. We should be gracious. We should be interactive with people. Uh, We're not talking about oddness for oddness sake, but there should be a clear distinction. Your lives, again, should demonstrate uh, that you belong to God. Your thinking, your dress, your vocabulary, your labor, your relationships, your habits should be holy, set apart. That'll take courage. That'll take faith. That'll take trusting in the Lord. If God is pleased to give you a husband or a wife and children, your family must be modeled on the perfect holiness of God as well. And if we're going to do that, then we're going to need Him to tell us what the implications of this would be for our practical behavior. We need a perfect yardstick by which to measure holiness in our lives. And so the Bible teaches us that the Lord has provided this guide and standard in His holy law. And when I say law, I mean the whole Bible. Not just the Ten Commandments or portions of the Bible, but all the Bible is God's law. Romans 7.12 Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. So the law is a transcript of the holiness of God on a creaturely level. It's God revealing His holiness to us in written form. So you say, how can I know what it means to be holy? How can I know this God? Well, He has revealed Himself. Not exhaustively, but He's told us everything we need to know. By the way, just another little short rabbit trail. When you're faced with difficulty, hard situations in life, you say, I don't know why that happened. I don't know can't explain it. It's disturbing. Here's the deal. You, there's way more that you don't know than you do know. We, got, we talked about that at the beginning of this talk. You know almost nothing about everything. But you do know some things. Because God's revealed them. You know He's holy. You know He's powerful. You know He's good. You know He loves you. So no matter what it is you don't know about a situation... Those are the things you do know. That's what you stand on. You say, I'm going to stand on the things I do know that are certain, that are absolutely true, that I know. So the law is a transcript of the holiness of God on a creaturely level. This is the ultimate standard of human righteousness in any area of life, for it reflects the moral perfection and the holiness of God it's offered. The intimate relation which the law bears to the very person of God is indicated by the fact that it was originally written by his finger. Uh, Deuteronomy 9.10 Then Yahweh delivered to me two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and on them were all the words which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. Moreover, God placed his law in the ark, Uh, the Ark of the Covenant, which typified the throne and presence of God in the Holy of Holies. Moses said, Deuteronomy 10.5, Then I turned and came down from the mountain, and I put the tablets in the Ark which I had made, and there they are, just as Yahweh commanded me. They're set apart in the holy place. And so we must acknowledge God's Word to have a very special place or status because 
It has the exclusive qualities of God himself attributed to it. According to Scripture, God alone is holy and good. Revelation 15.4 Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. Jesus said, No one is good but God alone. Nevertheless, these same things describe the attributes of his word. Romans 7.12 Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. 1 Timothy 1.8 But we know that the law is good. Obedience to it, then, is the standard of human good. So I don't read the Bible and pick and choose. I don't know about that. Don't agree with this. You know what? Your way is not his way. Your thoughts are not his thoughts. Our job is to conform our thinking to his, not the other way around. We don't sit in judgment of him. He sits in judgment of us. And when you get that settled, you're in a good place. You're not always going to do it just right, but you know where to, where to return to get it right and to make the needed adjustments. Obedience. Uh, Deuteronomy 12:28. Observe and obey all these words which I command you. Why? That it may go well with you and your children after you forever. When you do what is good and right in the sight of Yahweh your God. You want a good life? You want a good family? You want great children? You want a future? This is, this is how. It's the implementation of holiness into your life. Psalm 119, 68. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Teach me your law. So God is perfect. Deuteronomy 32, 4. He is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice, righteousness and up, righteous and upright is he. Psalm 18.30, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all those who trust in him. And the law which he's laid down for us is accordingly perfect. Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. James 1.25, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. You want to be blessed in what you do. This is how. Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein, then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Every statute revealed by God authoritatively defines the holiness, goodness, and perfection which God's people are to emulate in every age. God's holiness is the standard of morality in the Old and New Testaments, and that holiness is reflected in our lives by obeying those commandments. I mean, it's like, you're talking about obedience, everybody. Oh, wait, I thought we're saved, but we're not being saved by obedience. We're talking about believing what God said. That's faith. How do you know, how would you know somebody believes you? Imagine you had a, your, your child and you told them to do something and they didn't do it. And, and, and then they told you, well, I believed what you said. I just didn't do it. You see the incongruity there, right? Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. It's just that simple. You could also say, if you believe me, 
If you believe what I'm saying is true, then why wouldn't you do it? Um, Leviticus 20, 7 through 8. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. For I am Yahweh your God, and you shall keep my statutes and perform them. I am Yahweh who sanctifies you, who makes you holy. That's what sanctification is. And a life that is truly consecrated to God, one which is genuinely holy, receives every dictate from God. God says that the way to be holy to your God is to remember to do all my commandments. When we abandon God's law and seek to replace it with our own law, we, like Adam and Eve, seek to be our own God. And so the law reflects the holiness of God, the holiness, and holiness is the permanent standard of morality. God's character is eternal and unchanging. I am Yahweh, I change not, Malachi 3.6, James 1.17, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Therefore, because his holiness is unchanging, the law which reflects that holiness cannot change either. Justice isn't something that a wax nose that changes from moment to moment or age to age. Whether we read it in the Old Testament or New Testament, we find that a man's attitude toward God's law is an index of his relationship to God himself. As John so plainly says, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. And so God's unchanging holiness and thereby his unchanging law is the abiding standard of knowing him and being like him. That's our foundation. We're going to look at some other aspects of holiness here uh, throughout the next couple of days. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holiness. We ask your forgiveness for the casual ways in which we have dealt with you and thought about you and interacted with you and represented you. Help us, Lord, like Isaiah, to get a true vision of your holiness so that we might get a better and more accurate view of ourselves. And as we are humbled by that vision of ourselves, may we then, like Isaiah, cry out to you. Woe is me. And we look to you as Isaiah received that burning coal to his lips to remove his sins. We look to our Lord Jesus Christ to take away our sins. That he might set us apart and begin that work in us of making us like your son. Conforming us to your image so that we will be like you. Be holy. Bless us now as we contemplate these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.